0: Hello. Today, we will not be recording a live episode out of respect to those who have lost their lives, have been injured, or are using their voices and their actions to fight for justice and human rights. This is an immensely important time in this country, and the conversations that it is sparking are, frankly, long overdue. And it feels important to me and to the entire CMC community that we address this moment with the gravity that it requires. For too long in this country, we have ignored the impact that our racist past has played. And, as a country, we actively ignore the racism that is present today. We ignore white privilege. We hide behind the idea that we are a meritocracy, when in reality, we actively hold down those who belong to marginalized groups. This has to change. There are people out there protesting who protested these same issues in the 1960s, It's too long for there to have been no discernible progress. On this show, we often emphasize that change does not happen in a straight line and that we are pulled to remain in the place where we are comfortable, even if that isn't working for us. As a country, we have spent too much time comforting the few and the powerful at the expense of so many others. We cannot let this continue and I support everyone who is finding a way to work toward that change. This week, we're gonna play an old episode. And next week, we will be talking with Dr. Lisa Martin and Cindy Carnegie, both anti-racism trainers and speakers so that we can have that important conversation. And to those who are fighting for civil rights and justice, this show supports you.
1: Thank you. Welcome to the Beyond Addiction Show with Josh King. This program is designed to help those who are affected by substance use. Whether you are using, trying to stop, or a loved one who wants to help, there are many effective resources, and together, we'll explore them and bring you hope. Now, here is your host, Dr. Josh King. Hello
0: and welcome back to the Beyond Addiction Show. I'm Dr. Josh King and with me today is going to be Shannon Casperson, an addiction psychiatrist who specializes in the treatment of adolescents. And she's going to talk to us about how substance use is different with adolescents and adults. We're going to talk about some specific substances and, and why they are <clears throat> ones that you might want to look at when you're talking to, about adolescents, And also, we're going to spend uh, a significant amount of time on prevention, what parents can do now to help prevent problems down the road. So that's going to be really good. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Next week, uh, we're going to be talking with Mark Green, who is a psychologist who's going to talk about accelerated experiential dynamic therapy which is an evidence-based dynamic therapy and how he and others are working to adapt it to be used in the treatment of substance use disorders. I want everybody here to have lots of different options uh, of how they are going to get the kind of help that they need. And this is just another option for us. So I'm very excited to have that conversation. I'm also very excited to announce that CMC co-founders and the co-founders of the CMC Foundation for Change, Doctors Jeff Foote and Carrie Wilkins, have co-authored a chapter uh, in the book, The Stigma of Addiction, and their chapter is all about stigmatizing myths about substance use disorder in the family. And they're going to, in it, they talk about uh, the idea of codependency, the concept of bad parenting, causing substance use and more. So it's a little bit more of a technical book. It's like a little textbooky, but it's one of those books out there that if you are working with a, a therapist, you should say, I'd like you to get this book. I'd like you to look at it because this is important information of how you can actually be helping me help my child, or you can be talking about, you know, as a patient, I I would like you to read this, my therapist, so that you have some idea about another way or more evidence-based ways of thinking about this. Finally, I'd like to thank everybody who has gone online and given us a review. I've said this before. Every time that you leave a review, and if you leave us uh, some stars, that's how more and more people find out about this show. Uh, And I just really appreciate everyone who does that. If you haven't had a chance to, please go online wherever you got this podcast and just give me those five stars. And if you have a minute, write that little review so that more more people can find this. Today, I was hoping to talk about triggers and cravings and trying to understand that or coping skills that people could use. And then I was on Twitter and I came across this article, a study from the John Hopkins uh, Bloomberg school of public health. And I, I like dropped everything and was like, well, I have to talk about this because it is so disturbing. This study looked at, um, substance use treatment facilities around the country from the years 2007 to 2016 and they specifically were looking for how many of these treatment centers are using medically assisted treatments for opioid use disorder specifically what we're talking about with that is treatments like methadone buprenorphine or naltrexone or vivitrol and i'm going to go through what all of those are but they're medications that you can use if you have an opiate addiction to help keep you from using more opiates. And they, they each work in a different way, but they were looking because the the research shows, and there is a lot of research out there that shows that if you are given these medications, your outcomes are significantly better than if you don't have them. And so you would hope that substance use treatment centers would be using this. Well, in 2016, only 36.1% offered any medically-assisted treatments. Any of those three, 36.1%. So that means two-thirds of the substance use treatment centers out there don't even offer life-saving medications for substance use uh, for opioid disorders when we have a full-on epidemic out there. Only 6%, only 6% offered all three of them. Now that I can I can understand a little bit because to be able to offer methadone is a much trickier uh, situation and that hasn't really gone up over that period of time from 2007 to 2016. But to not uh, to have two thirds of the places not offer anything is, is just shocking, and this is really disappointing because it, it totally fits with what we have some research that we have done here at CMC, and what we did here was we called thirty four of the top treatment centers around the country and asked them questions. We posed as as a parent who is trying to. Find out information about whether we should send somebody to that treatment center uh, for a a loved one. And when we called, less than 40% of the programs would ever even consider uh, maintaining somebody on Suboxone or buprenorphine uh, when they were being discharged or discharging them on it, which means that (laughs) six out of 10 places would say, we will, If you come in here and you're on this medication, we won't keep you on it. And if you are on it, if for some reason you're on it and you're, you're on it here, we would take you off of it before we send you back out to the world. And that is mind-boggling. It does not make sense because 95% of people who are on buprenorphine, 95% of people who are on buprenorphine do not relapse. will. But when they come off of buprenorphine, it flips. 95% of them relapse shortly. So these treatment centers are saying, "Mm, we're going to send you out in the world without that. Of the ones that, of the programs that said that they do not use Suboxone, they said um, they would only use Suboxone as a detox taper. Meaning they're going to use that to help get you off of the opiates that you have been on, but then we're not going to keep you on it. So again, we're going to send you back out there in the world, uh, you know, pretty much naked and uh, vulnerable. Then 12 of the programs would refuse to use Vivitrol or Naltrexone. And I'm going to go over what that is, but that's a full opiate blocker. Four of them didn't even know what that medication was. That's like going into a cancer doctor and saying, hey, have you heard of this chemotherapy thing? And he's like, mm, sorry, don't know what that is. I have no idea. That's, that's, that's like craziness. And they really don't do it. They literally said to us, oh, we really try to get patients off of everything and we would not want to discharge them on Vivitrol. Vivitrol, a medication that blocks opiates from being able to, get somebody high and one place said i don't even know what that is but if you spell it for me i can look it up and see if we use it again that's just like how are you a treatment center how are you someplace where somebody is going to get help and if you heard our show last week then you heard uh megan mcgalley talking about how as a parent, you're just so terrified in that moment and you're calling for help and they're saying, oh, you wouldn't want to do that. And you're like, okay, but that's actually anti-science. That's like saying, oh, well, we would really suggest that you put a lot of quartz crystals around the person and then hopefully, you know, that should suck out the, the poison in them. Like what? But yet that's what they're saying. So I'd like to go over what these three different medications are so that you are going to have more information. And the one thing I can say about people who will come back and listen to this show repeatedly is you're going to have a lot of information and that makes you an informed consumer. And that's what I want is I want informed consumers who can go back to their treatment providers and say, I know about this now. So I'd like to have a smart, thoughtful conversation. And if that person can't do that, bye bye we don't have to work with you anymore. So I'm going to start with methadone. Methadone is what we call a full agonist, meaning that it fully replicates the effects of an opiate without many of the side effects or the adulterants that can be added. There's no fentanyl. You don't have to worry about that. And it it doesn't quite... the way that it works chemically, it's been engineered to be a helpful tool to help keep people from using opiates and heroin that they're getting off of the street. People who are physically addicted can take it and then continue on in their day because of the way that the the medication kind of ramps up. It It should not, if it's being dosed correctly, if it's being taken correctly, it shouldn't kind of zonk you out. Now... Many people will say, Oh, I don't know. I saw a methadone clinic. There's one in my neighborhood. There's one where I work. And people are zonked out all the time and they just look terrible and it's really sketchy. That's because there was a huge backlash, uh, I think, in like the 1970s about when they were coming out with this uh, with methadone and putting it out there in the world, people saying, a lot of NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard. And it became this thing that got pushed off to the sides. And it also became very, very, very highly regulated. So much so that you had to go to very specific centers that nobody wanted in their neighborhoods. So they always kind of went to the the less desirable neighborhoods and everybody had to go there. And so it kind of drew in people who were working well, but also not working so well. And so it it became this very difficult thing to, to get and to use. At the same time, some people respond really well to it because it's strong. It's stronger than buprenorphine. And the structure that you need to adhere to in order to get it can be very stabilizing for some patients. The next medication is buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist, meaning that it doesn't fully activate in the same way that opioids do or that methadone does. It's not quite as strong. There's kind of a plateau that you hit, but it also, it sticks to the receptor. And so when it gets into your brain and it sticks to the receptor, if you take other opiates they're not going to be able to get in there and uh, get you high. Now, yes, people can overload this and and you, know, you start talking about this with people who have experience with addiction. Um, they say uh, with active addiction, they'll say, oh, well, I know this guy and I know that guy. I, uh, yes, there are always exceptions. And what it does is it, it's meant to stick into the receptor and kick out anything else that's there. So if opioids come in, new opioids from, let's say you use some heroin, it cannot activate. And so that means that it helps people reduce cravings and it helps reduce the desire to want to use more other opiates because you know they're not really going to work. The other big benefit is it can be given in a doctor's office and you can get a prescription. And that means that people who are saying, I don't want to go down there, I don't want to go down to this neighborhood that could be sketchy or shady, or I don't want to go down to this place where there might be people there who are trying to take advantage, I I don't have to go there. I could go to my local doctor, I could go sit down with them, I can um, get the, the medication, and then I can take it every day at home, which is really, really helpful. It lowers the bar so that more people can have access to it. And the third medication is naltrexone or vivitrol. Naltrexone is the short acting version of it. You have to take it every day and it lasts for about a day. And vivitrol is a shot that you get and it lasts for a whole month. And what it basically is, is an opiate blocker. It sits on top of the receptor without activating it at all. And so that if you take opioids, it kind of bounces them off. I Think about it sometimes in my own head as like like saran wrap that goes over the the top of the receptor so that they just cannot get in, nothing can get in there. Which means, right, if you fall and break your leg, you can't take any opiates to with that pain medication because they won't do anything. Um, this is really helpful because if you let's say you don't have a ton of cravings, you're not really um, actively wanting but uh, you're afraid that there might be some situations that will come up, this sets people off. It says, well, why would I even bother? Now, yes, again, people can override this. They can try. And when they do, that's really, really dangerous. And many people just don't bother. They say, why would I try to do this? I know what I'm, I'm doing here. I took this shot, and for the next 30 days, I'm set. It's helpful to know what these are so that when you go and you, if you ever need to go in and talk to a doctor about these medications, if they say to you, oh, we would only use this for detox or we wouldn't want to put you on this afterwards, turn around, walk right out because that person does not understand how these medications work and how they can be life-saving. And it is shameful. Truly, truly shameful that two thirds of treatment facilities in this country are not even offering any of these. And if they're not, if the one that you're looking at is not, if they say that we wouldn't do that, bye bye. We're not dealing with you. On that bright note, <laughs> I mean, it's just I get so upset about it because why would we keep life-saving things from people? <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Shannon Kasperson about adolescent substance use disorder and how we can treat it and how we can prevent it. So we'll be right back after these messages.
1: CMC Foundation for Change is a new not-for-profit that is all about families helping families and parents helping parents through addiction from those who have been there. Over 111 million family members worldwide are affected in some way by addiction. CMC Foundation for Change helps give these families hope through support, education and helpful resources. For more information about CMC Foundation for Change, please visit cmcffc.org on the web. That's cmcffc Now there's a book for families who are looking to help loved ones. Beyond Addiction How Science and Kindness Help People Change is now available at Amazon.com. Available in hardcover, paperback, and on Kindle. Pick up your copy of Beyond Addiction today. If you are a parent or a partner who is seeking guidance in helping a loved one with substance use, be sure to pick up the 20-Minute Guide. This is a terrific resource and proceeds help the CMC Foundation for Change. Visit the 20minuteguide.com. That's 20minuteguide.com. This is the Beyond Addiction Show. If you have a question or comment about our show, be sure to send an email to Beyond Addiction Show at joshkingpsyd.com. Again, that's Beyond Addiction Show at joshkingpsyd.com. Now, back to the show.
0: Welcome back. And joining me now is Shannon Kasperson, an addiction psychiatrist here in New York City where, who deals with uh Adolescent Substance Use. Shannon, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Josh.
0: And uh, you are an expert on adolescent substance use disorders. What is the difference between adolescent substance use and adult substance use? Is there a real differentiator?
2: Yes, absolutely. Adolescents are not just miniature adults um, or young younger versions of adults. They have a very different... Response to substances. Um, the The adolescent brain keeps growing until you're about 25. So,
0: Shannon, we we lost you there for a second. Oh, sorry. Could you repeat that?
2: Sure. So I was saying that the adolescent brain keeps growing until you're 25. So, unlike every other organ in your body, which is finished up by the time you're 15, 18. The brain keeps growing, so the effect that substances have on a growing brain—and it really doesn't matter what the substance is—is is profoundly different from what it is on an adult brain over the age of 25 that's fully grown.
0: Any particular part of the adolescent brain that is, like, we, that we should really be thoughtful about?
2: Yeah. So, so the the parts of our brain that finish developing first are the ones that concern emotion and drives. So an adolescent can um, can feel things really strongly. Um, you, we know that the adolescent mood swings, they can feel cravings really strongly. They can have impulses. We, we see them being very risk-taking. But what they don't have fully grown yet is their frontal lobes, which are what kind of are the break on those those impulsive drive motivated behaviors. So they've got, they've got the desires and the emotions without the cognitive control yet to, to sort of put a break on their own behaviors.
0: Which seems like a really big problem because if you don't have that break, how are you going to know eh, I'm doing too much or this is unsafe?
2: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there's, And it's not, you know, it's not, We people sometimes talk about teenagers as being irresponsible or having a sense of invincibility. And it's absolutely nothing volitional that they're doing. It's purely brain development. It's like, you know, toddlers can't walk smoothly until they're a little bit older. Teenagers can't control their drive smoothly until they're a little bit older. So they're very vulnerable when it comes to substances like alcohol or marijuana or nicotine, um, because they will have a more positive, positive response and a less negative, negative response to whatever the substance is. Um, I think
0: that's a nice way of thinking about that. Um, What are some of the early signs of substance use uh, disorders in adolescents?
2: So what I tell parents to keep an eye out for is changes in their children's behavior. So for example, a change in friend group. If all of a sudden your son who's had the same crew through eighth grade has a totally different friend group all of a sudden in ninth grade, um, that's a concern. If you see the uh, drop in their grades, um, that's not explained otherwise, if you see them sleeping a lot more or sleeping a lot less, um, those are all signs that there is something going on. And with adolescents, there's often a substance that's responsible.
0: So I I feel like we probably just scared a lot of parents who are like, Mm -hmm. I think my kid's sleeping more now. Um, How would you differentiate between like the normal adolescent, like, oh, I now sleep 10 hours and I'm, I'm moody and in my room versus it's a substance use.
2: Right. That's a great question. And of course, uh, teenagers are changing friend groups all the time, right? That's the whole idea with cliques and loyalties shifting and frenemies. And, um, but but when you see a kid go from, say, um, a friend group that's pretty, you know, really focused on sports or really focused on academics, and then all of a sudden they don't, they're not interested in their extracurriculars anymore, and they have friends who don't really do anything after school except hang out, and there's a shift in the, the type of friend um, more than sort of the actual friends themselves that you want to be concerned about. And with the sleep, I mean, our our poor adolescents today, you know, they have to get up much earlier than their circadian clocks want them to for school. And um, they have a lot of homework. So they're staying up really late. So of course, they're tired. But the warning signs we worry about are, you know, a kid who's Kind of nodding off at the table at dinner time um, or is spending the weekends really in bed all day we're not we're not worried about kids who you know catch up on sleep on the weekends and sleep till 11 a.m That's pretty standard teenage behavior
0: okay so if they if they seem to have a life still if they seem to function, that's not necessarily what we're looking for it's more that they, they've kind of shut down and everything has changed like drastic uh, 180.
2: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: Okay. So let's go into some of the specific uh, substances. Uh, Alcohol feels like one of those things that I would never know whether we're doing it right, whether the Europeans who kind of allow a little bit more of um, exposure to alcohol earlier are doing it right. What, What do you think? When should adolescents start using alcohol?
2: Yeah, which is such an interesting question, and I hear from parents all the time this, this issue of what the Europeans do versus what we do. From a purely biological standpoint, the later the brain is exposed to alcohol, the better. So uh, as long as you can kind of stave off use, and that really goes for any substance, the better. Um In some ways, I think that the drinking age and the everything else age should probably be 25 since there's nothing special about 21 when we're talking about brain development. Um, There's nothing, your brain isn't ready for alcohol at age 21, that's just the law. Um, And that is the law, but a lot of kids are gonna start experimenting earlier. So I think that driving home to kids from an early age, and we can talk about this when we talk about prevention, um, driving home the idea that the longer you wait, the better, is the best parental message to give. Um, I can't I can't give you a safe age at which to start drinking. There just isn't one.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what would you say to, to somebody who says, right, but exposure earlier on means that it's just not going to be as big of a deal?
2: You know, I, I like that idea, but it doesn't really bear out. I think I think that there's a big difference between having a glass of champagne with your parents on New Year's Eve and your first frat party in college. Um, There's not not much resemblance between those two situations. So I'm not sure that that glass of wine or champagne with your parents is really going to prepare you for the shots that are offered to you at your first frat party um now is a is a glass of champagne and like sort of the effect it might give you is that a good um it, that's a good model of what alcohol is is kind of meant for right so if you're modeling for your kids how alcohol can be used responsibly i think that's a good thing but there's no reason that it needs to be when they're 14 versus when they're 19 why why not wait till they're 19 if that's possible
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so what can parents do other than saying, all right, well, don't, don't drink until later on? What can parents do to reduce the risk uh, of alcohol misuse amongst adolescents?
2: So I think the most important thing is, is the modeling of, of having a safe relationship with alcohol. I tell parents that um, even parents of small children to never be intoxicated in front of their kids um, that's a scary a scary experience for a child of any age to see their parent impaired or at least altered from their usual self. Um, and it's, it's modeling exactly what we don't want our kids to be doing with alcohol. So first is, is never be drunk in front of your kids. That doesn't mean never drink in front of your kids. If you're modeling for your kids that you have one glass of wine with dinner or one glass of wine before dinner and one with dinner or something, that's, that's showing them a safe way of interacting with alcohol. Um, So I think that kind of work can start really early on and talking to kids really early on about how drinking is something that grownups do. Um, Once they are teenagers and their peers are starting to experiment with alcohol, I recommend and and most people in my field recommend um, as much supervision and oversight as you can provide. So you don't you don't leave your kids alone for the weekend um, and let them have friends over because that is that is inviting risk-taking behavior, which they're biologically programmed to engage in. Um, so why why give them that opportunity um, and put them at that risk? So the more, involved you are with their lives and their activities, the safer they're going to be.
0: And what would you say to parents? I heard this a lot, um, even as a high schooler myself, but I've heard it uh, as an adult where um, they say, well, the parents are home and the parents would say, well, I'd rather them do this while I'm here. And so they can have their friends over and they could drink. And I'd rather them do it here than like in, in the, you know, local playground or something like that where I don't know what they're doing? What would you say to a parent who, who kind of holds that idea?
2: So I think that's a very um, noble approach by that parent, but number one, they're putting themselves at risk because they are responsible for the minors who are at their house um, and responsible for what happens to them. And I would also uh, warn them that it's a lot harder to have oversight than, than it might seem. I just had a family in this past week who are model parents when it comes to substance use with their teenage children. They They talk about it all the time. They talk about their family history of substance use problems. They check in with their kids about what their friends are doing. They suggest to their kids ways of refusing substances when offered, they really do. They're like the poster parents. And (laughs) they let their daughter have some friends over a couple of weekends ago. And it wasn't that many people. They kept, they repeatedly went back into the room and sort of checked on the kids. Um, But these kids are smart, teenagers are smart. And they somehow had smuggled in some really high proof alcohol. And one of the kids got so sick that she was throwing up in the bathroom. And then they, you know, they took care of her and sent her home. And even after that happened, another kid drank enough that she ended up having to go to the emergency room. And this was under the parents' watch. Um, so being watchful is is tricky. It's tricky with adolescents. They're clever.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so that idea that. If it's happening under my roof, I'll know about it, or I can control it in some way. Is kind of a myth.
2: It is. It is. And with alcohol, are there there are things like you can smell it on a kid's breath. There, you know, there are ways to detect it. Um, with some other substances like vaped marijuana or vaped nicotine, it can be pretty much undetectable, especially for parents who are not um, really experienced with it. So kids can be using quite literally right under your nose and you, you may not know.
0: Well, let's switch over to um, vaping and e-cigarettes and, and the Juul and Juuling, uh, which you're probably going to have to define for, for people here. What, what is it? Is it bad? Like, give us some, some details on this.
2: Sure. So there's, there are basically three broad categories of things that can be vaped and vaping refers to inhaling a vaporized substance. So there are these flavored vapes that are really just flavorings. You're inhaling flavored steam. Um, A lot of kids will say that that's what they're using, but they're actually um, using vaporized nicotine or vaporized THC. And the, the vape device is it comes in all different shapes, but it can be very small. A jewel, which is the most popular brand name amongst adolescents, looks like a flash drive. And you, in fact, plug it into your computer to charge it. Um, so many a teacher and parent has mistaken it for a flash drive, not, not even known what it was. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. it's And, and you just you, you inhale it. Um, a little tiny bit of vapor will come out of your mouth, but not a lot. Um, and it's a very efficient way of delivering nicotine or THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. Um, it's a very e- efficient and subtle way um, or clandestine way, let's say, of delivering it.
0: Right. So these were developed, I think, to, to be a, a a better alternative to even get people to stop smoking cigarettes, is it in fact safer than a a traditional cigarette?
2: So we don't know in that we do not have a good body of research on, on that question. People can hypothesize that because um, a nicotine vape does not have all of the other thousands of ingredients that are found in combusted tobacco in cigarettes or cigars, that it may be safer, um, but we can't, we can't say that for sure yet. There are other additives in, in the vape juice, as it's called, that we, we don't know whether they're carcinogenic or would cause other health problems. Um, one, one thing that I sometimes tell kids is that in the same way that crack is the free base version of the cocaine molecule, the nicotine that is in a jewel is the free base version of the nicotine molecule. So it's not exactly the same thing. Is vaped nicotine, you know, is the analogy of vaped nicotine to cigarette nicotine the same as crack cocaine to cocaine? We don't know. There's not evidence. This stuff is really new. It hasn't been properly studied yet. So
0: are you saying, though, in that analogy, that it's like significantly stronger?
2: It's. It's in a different form and it's delivered much more efficiently. And for adolescents, their brains respond to nicotine very differently from adults. Um, How so? They, so just as I was saying with kind of a lot of substances, they feel the positive effects more strongly and they don't feel the negative effects. Um, so they use more, more quickly they become dependent more quickly and the dependence on nicotine, it looks like from some, some really good basic research that's happening, looks like it kind of lays down pathways in the brain for addiction in general. So addiction later on to alcohol or cocaine or opioids, those pathways in the brain can be laid down by nicotine. In adolescence.
0: That's that's really interesting, and exactly. and I know that the um, the pathways for nicotine and alcohol mirror each other very very closely, don't they?
2: Yes, all all addictive or compulsive behaviors follow a kind of a general path in the brain. So um, so it applies to food, it applies to alcohol, it applies to sex. It's the dopamine uh, reward circuit and all of these things activate that circuit. And that circuit's a good thing. You know, humans need to have a drive to eat and a drive to have sex so that they'll procreate. Um, but, but drugs and alcohol hijack that reward pathway and, um, and cause problems.
0: hmm So the other thing that you said that you can vape is uh, not just nicotine, but you can also vape marijuana. And that is, you know, everywhere it's becoming more widely accepted. It's getting, becoming legal in so many places here in New York, they're talking about having it legal like this month. Um, What are the implications about marijuana in in the adolescent brain and how does that play out?
2: So that's it. The, the THC that can be vaped is really concerning for adolescents because it, it provides much higher concentrations of THC than a, a marijuana cigarette would, um, a marijuana cigarette today, which is much stronger itself than the marijuana cigarettes of 20, 30 years ago. So a THC vape juice can be up in the 90s in terms of its percentage of THC. And the concerns with marijuana and the adolescent brain are really about interference with proper brain development. Um, a lot of the receptors that THC interacts with are play an integral role in brain growth and development during adolescence. So the, the effects on the adolescent brain of THC are very different than they are for adults so the increasing concentrations of THC that you can get in the juice are, are really concerning.
0: Uh, it, and is that is it better or worse than alcohol?
2: <laughs> um, it's, it's a question I get a lot. And what I say is that two wrongs don't make a right. Um, I don't think that we should be encouraging kids to smoke rather than drink um, or vice versa. I think they're both um, not good for adolescent brains and you'd be hard pressed to find a pediatrician or a child psychiatrist who'd disagree with that based on the good research that we do have. Um, so I say the later, the better for both.
0: Right, and, and But from a harm reduction standpoint, so, because I, I, I think if we, if we come out with the message that says, nope, don't do any of this stuff ever. A lot of parents are going to say, well, but I I can't really enforce that. Um, What would you say, uh, how, how can parents handle this from a harm reduction standpoint?
2: Yeah, so again, I'm not saying that parents should be telling their children never to drink or use marijuana, but they can be encouraging their children and helping their children to find ways to delay use or at least heavy use as much as possible. Um, So it's not, yeah, it's not an, it's not an abstain until you're 25 because that's what's best for your brain. That's not the message. It's that the longer you can, you can not use or use in small amounts, the better.
0: That, That makes a lot of sense. And I think that idea of keep it light, how do we do that? How do we understand how this impacts the brain? Um, I think it's a really nice message to be able to give. And that's one that, as you said a couple of times, parents can really model. For yeah, their I think,
2: you know, use the analogy to coffee. No parents tell their kids, you can never drink coffee, son. They say, you can't drink coffee till you finish growing because it'll stunt your growth, right? Mm-hmm. This is exactly the same. Um, it's don't drink coffee till you you're done growing. Don't you know try not to use um, here are some ways that you might be able to refuse alcohol and marijuana or use it minimally when you're offered it um, until you're older
0: okay, so let's let's switch over to some prevention uh, pieces because I think every parent here just wants to know what can I do, and we've been weaving this in and out, but what what are like the the main points that you try to talk about with parents?
2: So as I said earlier, modeling healthy relationships with substances, um, talking to your kids about when when people should be using substances, if at all, which is when they're grown ups, um, and as as they get closer to adolescence, and that might start to feel less realistic to them, talking to them about specific ways they can not use when they're in a using environment or use minimally. Um, so I think back to when I was going off to college, my mom said, you're going to drink in college, but don't ever drink the punch because you don't know what's in it. Um, and I literally say that to all my <laughs> patients who are going off to college that they should drink, you know, beer that they see come out of the container because they know it's never going to be more than 6% alcohol, whereas a punch can be grain alcohol, which is 100 Group, you know so so like little techniques like that tools that they can use um, because then you create this collaborative relationship between the parent and the kid instead of an antagonistic one um, let me help you navigate the world of substances rather than don't you ever use and if you do I'll disown you kind of thing yeah
0: let's let's talk a little bit more about just that that idea of um, how you enter into that conversation. Cause I really like what you're saying is like, keep it collaborative. How do we help do this together? But um, how would you bring someone into the conversation? How would you suggest to a parent that they can start this conversation with their child?
2: So a good way is you, you don't want to ask a kid point blank, are you using drugs or are you drinking you? So it's good to start by asking what some of the kids in their class are using or have they heard about kids at other schools Um, nearby using marijuana or jewels or drinking and get them talking about their peers. That can also give you a good sense of what their attitude is towards these various substances and then ask them about their own use, about what their concerns are about other people using and using themselves.
0: Okay. So that's a nice roundabout kind of way is like enter by talking about the environment and... Um, what they see happening versus what are you doing might feel less threatening.
2: Yeah. Or even, you know, you don't want to wait until they're in the midst of it all to talk about it. So when they're younger, but becoming aware, like, let's say, you know, this is different based on what part of the country you're in, et cetera. But let's say when they're in seventh grade, they, kids in eighth grade maybe are starting to use. So then you can ask them about the older kids so that they're used to having these conversations. So it's not this big, awkward sit-down talk that happens once and then it's over. It's just an ongoing dialogue that changes over the years.
0: Interesting. Uh, Note to self, do not do the big, awkward sit-down talk.
2: No, exactly. I mean… I my child is 5 and we we talk about this stuff now on a level that's appropriate for a 5-year-old and of course she says mommy I never want to drink wine. Well guess what when she's 15 it's going to be a different story but we will have been talking about it for 10 years so it'll be normal to keep talking about it.
0: Mhm. And what about if a adolescent kid says well didn't you do this when I was a kid? When you were a kid? Like weren't when you were my age didn't you smoke pot?
2: Yeah and you it's you know you don't certainly Don't lie to your kids. Um, You can tell them that you did. But if it's pot you're talking about, it was essentially a different drug when when any of us were kids. Um, It's so much stronger now. It has a completely different chemical profile. It's a different drug. And you can talk about maybe some of the reasons you did use and some of the reasons you wished you'd waited longer before you tried it. Or if you had a bad experience, share that.
0: Um, So it's... it sounds like what you're saying is just kind of open up this dialogue, have it be um, not really uh, accusatory. Don't kind of hold this sense of like, don't do that. Or, or I'm like perfect in this way. Say, yeah, you know, here's what was going on for me. Let's have this conversation. Like have a real live conversation being vulnerable with your child.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly.
0: I think for a lot of parents who are hearing this, they're like, that's, Unusual for me. I, I don't I don't do that with my kids.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you can practice with um, topics that are perhaps less charged first. I sometimes send families home with homework assignments to talk about current events over dinner, or or what's going on in reality television these days. You know, subjects that are not so personal or so intense, um, because sometimes adolescents and their parents can really get out of practice with having just conversations with each other. Um, and it does take practice.
0: So it sounds like the two really big keys to, um, it, two really big keys to, to prevention are keeping conversation or, and, uh, modeling.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I would say modeling and dialogue are the two, the two best approaches.
0: That's awesome. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on. Where, what can people find from you? Where can they find you?
2: Um, they can find me. I have a website, ShannonCaspersonMD.com. Um, and all my contact info is right there.
0: Excellent. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Uh, this was really, really helpful. I think people are going to really enjoy this. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right in a couple minutes.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Now there's a book for families who are looking to help loved ones. Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change is now available at Amazon.com. Available in hardcover, paperback, and on Kindle. Pick up your copy of Beyond Addiction today. If you are a parent or a partner who is seeking guidance in helping a loved one with substance use, be sure to pick up the 20-Minute Guide. This is a terrific resource and proceeds help the CMC Foundation for Change. Visit the 20minuteguide.com. That's 20minuteguide.com. CMC Foundation for Change is a new not-for-profit that is all about families helping families and parents helping parents through addiction from those who have been there. Over 111 million family members worldwide are affected in some way by addiction. CMC Foundation for Change helps give these families hope through support, education and helpful resources. For more information about CMC Foundation for Change, please visit cmcffc.org on the web. That's cmcffc dot org
2: us on twitter at voice TRN. get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice America trn
1: This is the Beyond Addiction Show. If you have a question or comment about our show, be sure to send an email to Beyond Addiction Show at JoshKingpsyd.com. Again, that's Beyond Addiction Show at JoshKingPsyd.com. Now, back to the show.
0: Thank you for Coming back and listening to the end, uh, that was Shannon Casperson, who, by the way, you can find her on Instagram at Dr. Shannon Casperson, which is spelled C A S P E R S E N. And so she can also be found on Instagram there, Dr. Shannon um, That was super helpful because, I, I, you know, one of my colleagues says, he had to do so much more research and and um, take tests and everything to get his driver's license than he did to have to take his kids home. So if you're a parent, you're just kind of sent out there to do it. Um, and so having this kind of information from somebody like Shannon, who is just an expert in the field and clearly knows so much, uh, it's it's really, really helpful. Um, and I like that message. Uh your job as a parent is to model good behaviors, is to keep conversations going, and is to be collaborative—not to tell kids what to do, but to help work with them on this. And you know, CMC actually—we we built a, a website um, that was in connection with Viacom that we did uh, a little while ago. It's at motivationandchange.com/listen. You can still check it out. It's up there. It's it's a really cool website because it is just about what kind of skills could you use as a parent to just listen more, to see hear like, what is going on and how do I open up this conversation so that we can be talking more? Because the more you talk to your kids, the more you make it a safe space for them to talk, the more likely you are to get help to be able to help them. Um, And that's just huge. So uh, motivationandchange.com slash listen is one place that you could go to get some of these tips about how to have those kinds of collaborative uh, conversations. I want to remind people, next week, we are going to be talking to Dr. Mark Green about the Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapies, uh, which is an evidence-based treatment that he and other people are adapting for use with substance abuse. That is great because we wanna make sure that everybody who is looking for substance use treatment has multiple options because I I always say that um, finding a therapist is like finding a pair of jeans. Just because it says that it's your size, just because it says the right size on it, does not mean that it's actually going to fit your body the right way. And you got to try on a couple of pairs of jeans till you find the one that you say, ah, this one really fits me right. And that's the same with therapists. It's also the same, same with types of treatment. This has to be something that the approach fits you and that it's tailored to you. So... Learning about this type of treatment and saying, oh, that really connects with me. That might connect with me more than this other evidence-based CBT program. I just want to be able to have options. And that's what informed consumers do. You, you do that if you were buying a car. You should do that if you're uh, spending a significant amount of treatment and time. The money and time on treatment uh, seems like it makes sense to me. Uh, if you have any questions for me that you'd like to answer on the show, please send me an email at beyondaddictionshow at joshkingpsyd.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Doc Josh king. I would love to answer your questions. I think it's awesome when I get to answer your questions. So please send me those things um, when you have them. You can also find us on Twitter, on Stitcher, on Uh, Google Play. You can find us on Voice America's network. You can find me everywhere. If you like this show, rate and review. Those two simple words, rate and review. That's the difference between you guys hearing it and thousands of people hearing it. So please, please, please Let's get this show out there to the world, um, so that we could get information like what Shannon had for for all of those parents with adolescents, uh, we could get that information out there. I think that was really cool. So till next time, I'm Dr. Josh King. It's been my pleasure, and we'll see you next week.
1: Thank you for joining us this week for the Beyond Addiction Show. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until the next program, we wish you encouragement and hope.